hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now privileged to be joined by a group of Reddit specialists who came together and put together the Young Investigators issue of the Journal of Vitreoretinal Disease. They're going to tell us a little bit about this issue, and then we're going to talk about a few of the articles and use them as jumping off points for discussion. Uh, going in alphabetical order, um, we have Dr. Uh, uh, Zillard Kish from uh, Cornell University. Uh, Dr. Kish is um, faculty there where he is head of the uh, retina service, and um, he's joining us now from New York. Dr. Kish, thank you for being here. Pleasure to be here. Next in alphabetical order, we have Dr. Mario Romano joining us all the way from Italy, where he is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology uh, at Humanitas University in Milan. Uh, also, he heads the Ophthalmology Department in Bergamo. Uh, Mar- Dr. Romano, thanks for being us. Yeah, you too, John. And last but not least, uh, previous correspondent, Dr. Yoshihiro Yonokawa. Um, he's actually in a new position now. Uh, Dr. Yonokawa is currently an adult and pediatric retina surgeon at Wills Eye Hospital Mid-Atlantic Retina in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yoshi, thanks for being back. Very excited to be back. Thank you very much. Well, thank you guys again for joining me. Um, just before we get into this, and, and maybe I'll let um, Zillard tell us a little bit about um, JVRD and this issue. Um, just tell us a little bit about what this issue was designed to do, uh, how JVRD relates to the American Society of Retina Specialists, and then we can start talking about these articles. Well, Jay, the uh, Journal of Vitreoretinal Disease, or JVRD, is the official publication of the American Society of Retina Specialists. It really reflects the membership and their ideas and thoughts in the current state of the art of the retina medical and surgical treatment and ideas. And it's headed by uh, my chair, Dr. Donald D'Amico. He is the uh, uh, editor-in-chief, and the three of us serve as deputy editors. Uh, The purpose of this issue was really threefold. We wanted to get together the deputy editors and try to come up with an issue that highlights the young and up-and-coming and some already established retina specialists among us to really allow them to voice their ideas in a peer-reviewed fashion. The, the second was also to thank the mentors that help guide these young uh, faculty members. You know, it, without the uh, giants on whose shoulders we stand, we, we really wouldn't be able to move this field forward. And then third, to get a sense of what the young folks are thinking about, you know, not only highlighting what their mentors may be uh, pushing them towards or mentoring towards, but also what are their interesting ideas and try to get an issue together from the representatives of the ASRS, a worldwide issue that represents the young retina specialists. Well, and those are, again, just an awesome, awesome idea. Uh, and when, just from our standpoint, just for the listeners, when ASRS approached us and asked if we wanted to talk about this issue, uh, I thought it was a great idea because, we, again, we love to kind of highlight um, what younger investigators are doing and, and also, again, like you said, uh, build upon the shoulders of the giants in the past with this research. So um, we're going to talk about a few of the papers. The first paper we're going to use as a discussion point was published by uh, a group uh, with the primary author being Arshad Kanani from Marine... Um, 
Reno, Nevada. Senior author is Julia Haller from uh, Will's Eye Hospital. It was entitled Full Thickness, Macular Hole, and Symptomatic Vitreo Macular Adhesion, a Comparison of Visual Results in Patients Receiving Partial Endovitrectomy in One Eye and Acroplasma in the Fellow Eye. Uh, just to briefly summarize, again, uh, and again, for the listeners, if you want to read the article, um, you can access it in J- via JVRD. Uh, but essentially, they looked at patients who had a macular hole in one eye and, and symptomatic um, vitromacular adhesion, vitromacular traction in the other eye. Um, one eye was treated with surgery, the macular hole, the other eye was treated with uh, pharmacological therapy. And um, they had eight, 18 patients with bilateral disease. And essentially, they showed that the acroplasmic eyes did very, very well, had good improvements in visual acuity, and did not necessarily need vitrectomy. Uh, Mario, just let's talk a little bit first about um, macular holes and vitreous traction and acroplasmin. So, how often do you use acroplasmin versus surgery versus observation versus gas, for example, for a patient with vitreous macular traction? How do you stratify a patient when you see them and decide how you're going to counsel them and decide on the treatments? My indication for acroplasmin injection are very restrictive. The cases reported by the study are part of a small patient subgroup of intravitreal acroplasmin treatment. The occurrence of uh, bilateral full thickness macroalur is about 7% in six years, increasing uh, to as much as uh, 40% if in fellow eye there is a vitromacular adhesion without uh, PVD. Therefore, it makes sense, of course, to think about intravitreal acroplasmin injection in the fellow eye when the first eye is affected by full thickness macular hole. Uh, Besides um, for the fellow eye, in addition to the criteria reported by the MIVI study, so that means the size of vitro macular adhesion more than 1500 microns, avoiding tangential traction like a peritoneal membrane, better in a pseudophagic eye, we are looking more to the intraretinal changes that are indirect anatomical findings of a stronger adhesion and broad tangential traction. The recent literature reported that the decreased visual function is the result of a combination of both physical traction and Mueller cells-induced proliferation. So the activation of Mueller cell is characterized by hypertrophy and upregulation of GFAP that we can see as continuous ectopic inner foveal layer visible on OCT scans as hyperreflective band between inner plexiform layer and inner nuclear layer. This interretinal activation uses a stronger bridge adhesion between Mueller cells, ILM, and the vitreous cortex. Therefore, if present, we avoid indication for intravitreal ocuplasmin injection. Yoshi, on your end, I mean, you, you review and edited this article. Does this article make you more likely to use acroplasmin uh, than previous? I mean, it definitely is comforting. I think that we've talked about this before. Acroplasmin has kind of gone through different waves since it came out on the market. I think one of the big concerns was from the movie Trust study was some of the safety concerns, which was a very small number of patients. Um, but Yoshi, in your hands, does this make you more inclined to rethink your thoughts on acroplasmin? Or do you kind of have, again, a set criteria such as Mario has refined based on movie Trust? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think overall, my uh, use for aquaplasmin is still going to be pretty limited. And it was also reflected on the ASRS PAT survey, but I think it was like 2% this year or so, at least in the U.S., uh, where anyone's used aquaplasmin for any indication. Um, And for me, it's usually 
uh, observation or vitrectomy. So um, how I break it down is if there is VMT, but if the patient's 20-20 and asymptomatic, and if it is an incidental finding, I usually observe, but I kind of tell them about what they have. And if the eye is not 20-20, but the patient's not really bothered by it, I usually observe also. And if the patient's been symptomatic for some time, they, they want it fixed, definitely offer treatment. Uh, but if they were symptomatically, uh, they were symptomatic just very acutely recently and the adhesion is very focal, I tend to observe and have the patient come back in a few weeks. And I ask them to, uh, to call and come in sooner if anything worsens. I think a pro here is that these patients tend to have abnormal vitreoretinal interfaces. So I think it's important to check uh, the periphery for breaks and lattice, especially when that hyaloid lifts off and they develop a floater and they say, hey, my vision's better, but I have a floater now. I think it's important to make sure they don't have any tears. And uh, when booking surgery for VMT, I always tell the patient to call if the vision suddenly improves so that we can assess in clinic and potentially cancel the surgery. And I think um, you have several patients who released while awaiting surgery, and they're super happy, and they think you're the best thing since the sliced bread. Lord, one of the reasons I feel like some people are, are a little more hesitant for using aquaplasm or gas, as Yoshi references, the fact that these patients do have an abnormal vitreoretinal interface, not just in the macula, but peripherally. And you kind of need to have patients who are willing and able to come in for serial exams sometimes. So if you're gonna cause a PVD to form, you need to understand there's a risk of tear that's not insubstantial, it's somewhere in the range of five to 10%. Um, how, do you, how does this factor into your decision-making? Because I find sometimes that patients, you know, when I go through these options, especially very educated patients, they don't necessarily want to feel like they're they're running back and forth, and so many patients don't necessarily want to go down the pharmacologic or pneumatic route. No, absolutely. That's a very good point. You know, I think that um, the one in done uh, acroplasma, meaning one visit, one injection, and then we'll see you, you know, at some point down the line, is not a true paradigm. You know, I think that the population that was studied here is slightly different than a patient who walks in with symptomatic VMA and you're trying to decide which option to take. Here, patients have undergone surgery already, and so they, they sort of experienced what a surgery looks like. And then they're asked whether they want to come in serially following an intravitreal injection. So you've got to have patient buy-in. You know, vitreo macular adhesion, although we sort of lump it into it's not a big deal, it really is a big deal. You know, 2040 vision is not something that many patients are going to want to live with. I know when I my contact drops out and I go down to 2040, I'm going nuts. And so I think as long as you have a conversation with a patient, knowing that there are the side effects that have been mentioned, um, you know, I think it's a very viable option. One interesting thing that this article points out that several articles point out as well is, you know, we tend to think of uh, an outcome as, okay, the adhesion is gone and, you know, or the macular hole is closed. But what is the functional outcome? Uh, what are patients actually seeing? And for one reason or another, in this particular study uh, in the JVRD issue, uh, the vitrectomy group had worse vision. Now, one can, you know, sort of surmise why that may have happened, but I think that vitrectomy itself is not without its complications, not without its outcome issues. And so as long as you have a conversation with the patient about their expectations of follow-up, their expectations of outcome, I think acroplasm is a viable choice. Uh, just shifting gears, since you talked about uh, kind of getting patient buy-in, there was another article on this issue titled Elimination of Steroid Drops After Vitreoretinal Surgery by Elizabeth Atchison et al. 
And this article, just again, briefly summarized, they looked at giving patients um, subconjunctival either triampsinolone um, versus subconjunctival dexamethasone versus doing a standard topical steroid drop taper over time. And they, they essentially found in this group of 160 surgeries in the intervention group, they had 163 in the control group, there were really no differences in terms of IOP issues, inflammation complications, and a very small percentage of patients based on their exam findings were put back on drops despite getting the injections, about 5% of these patients. So, and so I'll let you start off. How do you interpret these results? I mean, I think one of the big hot topics, maybe less in retina, but more in the anterior segment realm is the thought of dropless surgery. And how important is dropless surgery? Because I think sometimes as retina people, we, we get, you know, kind of leery of dropless surgery because there is sometimes industry or pharmacological industry reasons to kind of push dropless kind of implants, injections, things like that. But there are maybe some valid concerns in terms of compliance, in terms of an aging population that finds it difficult to put in drops correctly, in terms of contamination after surgery. Do you think this is something that is going to become important as we go forward in the future? Oh, this is an amazing article. I, I really enjoyed reading it because I think I'm going to start doing it. And, you know, it's very practical. And um, you know, sometimes I think we have to separate evidence-based medicine from eminence-based medicine. And I'm not sure what the evidence is for, you know, four weeks or six weeks of drops and steroid taper and all that in vitro retinal surgery, a little bit different in cataract surgery. And, you know, I think Dante Paramici at one of the Veilvitrectomy meetings sort of came up with a survey that, you know, what do you do after your vitrectomy surgeries? And it was all over the place because we really don't have evidence. And so I think this article points to two factors. One, as we start gathering evidence, our assumptions may actually be uh, incorrect. And so if you can avoid drops, why not, right? You've got to make sure that the outcome is going to be the same and the safety profile is going to be the same as what we consider standard of care. And secondly, you know, don't underestimate the, the burden of drops, um, you know, especially if you don't need them. Uh, I have very intelligent patients who are like, was I supposed to be doing it three times, two times? When am I tapering? You know, you gave me three or four drops after surgery, maybe one for pressure or this or that, and, and they're all confused. And so I think that as we move forward and gather more evidence in our post-op care, it's going to be important to incorporate that evidence into our, our uh, everyday, uh, you know, practice. Mario, do you routinely in Italy prescribe steroid drops after surgery? And again, Solard said he, this may help modify his approach. Do you find yourself thinking that you may move away from this? Yes, we do. We still inject steroid subconj and topical steroid tapered over four, six weeks after the surgery. We still use the steroids because of uh, fibrin in anterior chamber, especially in combined cataract and vitreoidinal surgery, the posterior senechia, and uh, of course pain after vitreoidinal surgery. And we are aware of a difficulty of patients using drops after the surgery, but uh, you can better modulate the dosage of the topical therapy based on increase in intraocular pressure, corneal epithelial defect, in insufficient inflammatory control. Dropless indication is an interesting idea, considering that up to 10% of the patient does not take drops as instructed. However, 
currently we need to use a topical atropine and antibiotics after the surgery. Therefore, even avoiding the steroids, we can't go dropless yet. Yoshi, I mean, you, you work with pediatric patients, and that may be a case example where sometimes the drop therapy compliance or ability for parents to get the drops in isn't quite as good. There may be some, sometimes you may even have to assume that the patient's not going to be able to get get drops. How does that experience factor into how important you think drops are? And again, maybe there's not a one-size-fits-all. I think we would all understand that there are some surgeries where it's probably a lot more important than others. Yeah, so um, pediatric guys, uh, we think, tend to have more inflammatory responses. But I do stress that the antibiotics are the most important. Um, and then after that, steroids and then the uh, atropine drops. Uh, I think we've been a little more comfortable moving away from uh, dilating uh, drops and especially because it's been difficult to get for some patients. Um, right now, I do use steroids, although I realize it's not as critical as it was in the 20-gauge days with, you know, when the surgeries were more invasive, expensive, and longer. And I use 27-gauge uh, platforms a good amount, and I bet none of these patients really need it. And I still prescribe it, but if patients have a hard time getting it, I tell them not to worry about it. But I do think it's still important for more complex surgeries, especially if you're using silicone oil. And I feel like in these cases, especially a post-traumaized, you can develop a lot of inflammation and posterior sneaky very quickly. And I'm thinking of one patient I had recently with a complex PBR detachment in uh, an eye with super high myopia that we fixed, uh, who was a very, like, who wants everything natural, organic, really into like yoga and everything. And uh, including her drops, she really didn't want to, she had a fear of steroids and felt it was really bad for her. So she decided not to take any steroids. And day one, she looked great when we took the patch off. Week one, she, she missed. She came back a few days later, uh, and there was extensive posterior sneakier and this thick pre-silicone oil membrane. And so I think there's still a role uh, in some cases. We don't know which one's really yet, uh, but I think it'll be interesting to look into that. But as the, this paper suggests, it's not as critical these days. And um, I'm... With this paper, similar to Szilard, I think I'm probably going to change my practice patterns a little bit. You know, briefly, I'm just going to touch on the next article, Influence of Baseline Macular Edema on Cost Evaluation of PRP versus Intravitreal Ranibizumab for Proliferative Diabetic Retinopathy. Uh, my disclosure, I was a co-author on this paper, but really the lion's share of the work done by uh, Dr. James Lynn, one of our graduated fellows, Dr. Nico Yunuzi, one of our current fellows, and uh, Dr. Smitty, who one of my senior colleagues here at Baskin Palmer. Um, and I'm not going to get into the methodology because each time I do, I work with one of these papers, I have to relearn it. But essentially, uh, this is one of those papers that looks at quality-adjusted life years um, to factor in, kind of get a cost evaluation of these different therapies. And this was a looking at the five-year protocol S um, results and essentially showing that PRP still maintains a, a more favorable cost utility compared to Renabizov, not surprising given the different costs of those two therapies. And not surprising given that in this group, the visual acuity differences were not huge between the groups at five years. Um, so, and we're not going to talk so much about the, the, the cost for a second, but Yoshi, um, we've had a lot of data, and how do you use anti VEGF for PDR? I mean, are there scenarios where do you always use it? Are there scenarios where you only do PRP? Are there scenarios when you only do anti-VEGF? So how do you kind of use these three together? There seems to be some data suggesting that combination therapy is the best, but there's, again, not a one-size-fits-all. So are there scenarios where you'll do PRP only or anti-VEGF only? Yeah, so this is a super hot topic in our field. Um, and I think the data for both, both PRP and anti-VEGF are very strong. And I use either or both depending on the pathology and the social factors. 
So if I know a patient will have difficulty following up, whether for medical issues or socioeconomic issues, PRP is recommended. And it's potentially a one-and-done deal. And as the Wills group have, has shown, follow-up can be suboptimal in this patient population, and visual outcomes are worse after being lost to follow-up after anti-VEGF treatment compared to PRP, where the patients, even if they get lost to follow-up, they come back with relatively better visual uh, vision. And so for me, um, another indication for PRP is if there are fibrotic components to the neovascularization, I try to avoid anti-VEGF. These patients were excluded from protocol S. But if there's only fresh neovascularization, I think anti-VEGF is beautiful. It beautifully melts away the NV. And of course, if there's concurrent DME, anti-VEGF kills two birds with one stone, and it makes so much more sense to use anti-VEGF as the primary modality. But in reality, I think we all use some kind of combination. Um, and it was the same way in the clinical trials also, both in protocol S and Clarity, about half the patients receive both modalities. So it's not really an anti-VEGF versus PRP but it's how do you uh, mix up the two. And um, I find that I usually start with one and I tack on the other if the response is either suboptimal if, or if a reason for the other arises. Usually it's anti-VEGF for DME and PRP for follow-up issues. So, Lard, you've really made a huge mark in looking at ultra-wide field imaging uh, and angiography. And how does your experience in that kind of factor into your decision-making when you think about PRP and anti-VEGF uh, and kind of, again, following up in Yoshi's thoughts, in this paper, how do we incorporate anti-VEGF therapy when we may be ideal therapy for, therapy for an individual patient, but we're also trying to keep in mind there are huge costs to the healthcare system and society at large using anti-VEGF for everyone may not be feasible. Jay, I mean, I think those are the excellent questions. You know, cost utility and everything that we do these days is highly scrutinized. Uh, it's got to work, but it's got to be cost effective. And I think that we need to take that into consideration. As uh, Yoshi pointed out very nicely, it's not a one-size-fits-all. You know, we all know that those subjects who are recruited to clinical trials are different than our everyday patients who are sitting in front of us and may or may not come back for three, four, six months, or even longer. I think ultra-wide field imaging in my practice plays a critical role. And I, I look at it as a disease burden. You know, when we made these distinctions, the categorizations of the different diabetic retinopathy scores, we really were not looking at all of the retina. We were looking at about half the retina. And so if I see a frond of NV that's out in the periphery with some areas of ischemia, uh, I know that a couple of shots of anti-VEGF therapy may really control that. And the follow-up may not be as important as somebody who has a large burden of disease with fibrovascular membranes and neovascularization all over the ultra-wide field imaging. And so I think that the one-size-fits-all really comes into, or doesn't fit all, really comes into play there. Although both of them we would consider proliferative diabetic retinopathy, it, they're, they're really different diseases. And, and you're dealing with different uh, mechanisms that you're going to take care of these patients with. Uh, I'll tell you one of the things that we don't discuss is the role for earlier surgery. You know, clearly somebody who needs 18, 20 anti-VEGF injections at two grand a pop, that's really not going to compare favorably to one or two, uh, you know, shots of laser, sessions of laser. But what about going in earlier in the proliferative disease patients and uh, doing vitrectomy? And I know that uh, Nina Barakal has done some work on that, and Marie actually, uh, so give credit where credit is due. Marie has done a lot of work on it. And in many patients, 
you know, the vitrectomy itself uh, with laser during the vitrectomy does wonders for their proliferative disease where they may not need to necessarily, you know, come in as frequently as, as they would with the other treatment modalities. But a cost is something that's going to keep on coming up, uh, you know, as these young retina specialists mature into their careers. Mario, I'm going to get your thoughts in one second, but I want to ask the Lord a follow-up question. I think that that idea of early vitrectomy, Maria Baracology references, talked a lot about this. Um, I think it's great, and I think one of the reasons that people get maybe turned off by it, and I'm struggling with this right now, is I think that there are some patients where you can do it, and I think you can really, really stabilize their retinopathy. But I've had a couple of patients where even when everything has gone well, and if you feel like you've done the maximal amount, the vision results aren't always as good as the patient would like. And and I, I wonder how much of that is progressive ischemia, just from the stress of surgery, even if the IOP is pretty well controlled. I wonder if some of that is maybe just the natural course of macular ischemia over time. Are you really arresting that by lifting the hyaloid? I don't know if we know the answer to that. Um, but but my question for you, and Dante Firamich actually asked this question at Vail, and, and it's a question maybe we don't know the answer to. If you go in in a patient with proliferative diabetic retinopathy and you lift the hyaloid completely, how much of the peripheral retina and non-perfusion do you still need to treat with laser? Because I think generally most of us will be conservative and treat it extensively, but he brought up the question, he was like, well, if you're getting rid of the hyaloid, how important is that non-perfusion clinically? Do we need to be doing such dense peripheral laser or could you just do peripheral scatter? And again, we may not know the answer to this, but I'm curious if you have any thoughts or theories based on your research. Oh, I just yeah. do peripheral scatter. I agree with Dante. You know, we're not we're not doing that the PRP of you know Don D'Amico days, if you will, where you're you know dense laser up to the arcades. No, I mean just hit hit the periphery a little bit. Um, you know, and, and that may not actually be necessary. There's a study uh, out of Regeneron looking at no laser following vitrectomy and doing some anti-VEGF therapy. I mean, I think that the, the biggest hindrance to going away from laser is the fact that it's sort of a one and you're done and you don't have to worry about follow-up in addition to the cost. But I agree with you. And, 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 you know, in terms of doing minimal laser when you do a vitrectomy, I'll tell you my theory about why we're not getting the visual outcomes in early vitrectomy partially has to do with the fact that we're going in very late. I mean, I think that you know, if, if we're reserving vitrectomy, and I don't know what your treatment pattern is, but I think most of us are still holding off a little bit on vitrectomy. And uh, if we're reserving the vitrectomy for those, uh, you know, that may not get the best benefit, then the visual outcomes may not necessarily reflect those of pharmacotherapy. Uh, so I think it, you've got to take that into consideration. I offer early vitrectomy to many of my patients and uh, the trouble that I've run into, and it sort of uh, you know, ties into the theme of the young investigator issue, which is that you know, in New York, we have very uh, large supply of eminent ophthalmologists who happen to have many more gray hairs than I do. And so they'll go to a second or third opinion, and they'll be like, oh, Keisha's is crazy for off even offering you vitrectomy this early in the disease. And they'll come back, and I'll treat them with anti-VEGF or laser. So I still have that rapport with the patients. But I think, you know, it's going to take some time to get early vitrectomy really on the table to the same effect that we have for laser and anti-VEGF therapy. Mario, in Italy, what sort of practice patterns do you use in terms of using anti-VEGF and or PRP for your diabetic patients? We combine both treatments. We treat PDR with or without DME, with 
initial anti-BGF injection, and we had peripheral photoablation of FA guided for ischemic areas after the first cycle, of course, of anti-VGF. Whereas I prefer only photoablation in presence of focal vasogenic activity associated with the DME. Although I prefer only anti-VGF in case of good peripheral perfusion and also anti-VGF before the surgery for PDR because decrease intra-op and post-op hemorrhage. Yoshi, before we shift to the last article, um, early vitrectomy is something we had discussed previously. Just your final thoughts on early vitrectomy for PDR. Uh, and maybe, like Solar suggested, there, there again so needs to be a generational shift because I think a lot of the older studies are based on maybe older technology and things that you referenced, uh, like 20 gauge and, and longer surgeries. Yeah, no, I think it's very effective. It uh, can save the high for the patients their entire life. It's cost effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we just need more evidence for it, and uh, and then it's going to be truly paradigm shifting when we do. We're very evidence based as retina specialists, and we just have to do studies about it. Last paper we're going to talk about. Um, this is actually an editorial review by Dr. Rajiv Mooney from Canada, uh, and he was the the lead author and presenter of the Pivot study, which which many people have talked about. But just to summarize, was looking a randomized controlled trial looking at pneumatic retinopexy versus vitrectomy for retinal detachments. Again, there were certain criteria for these detachments to qualify, again, because they needed to be pneumatic candidates, but they kind of use the extended criteria for this, such as in superior eight clock hours. Um, and essentially, they showed that the anatomic success was within 12%. It was about uh, 93% re- primary reattachment versus 81% primary reattachment. Uh, and the visual outcomes were very good in the pneumatic retinopexy group relative to the vitrectomy group. Uh, and one of the things he wrote in this editorial review, he just talked about maybe we should be rethinking our mental approach, that maybe primary reattachment shouldn't be the primary goal, it should be visual rehabilitation. And even if the primary success rate's a little bit lower, if it results in the final visual outcome benefit, how many, he referenced that you need to treat about eight patients with a vitrectomy based on the pivot study to get one extra reattachment. Are those numbers worth it? So, Yoshi, I will snake back. Did pivot make you rethink your approach to detachments? And what are some potential disadvantages of pneumatic retinopexy in real-world practice that people will encounter? Yeah, so um, big, lots of credit to Rajiv's team for organizing this trial. I think retinal detachment studies, uh, especially prospective, it's, it's really hard to do. And uh, there are very few studies that are, you know, have really good data. And so I think Pivot has made a, a big impact uh, on the field. And, um, uh, you know, um, I think uh, in this editorial also, uh, I really like Rajiv's point. His main point is that, you know, we have, we're being too fixated on single surgery success rates, which is important. But what about, you know, the visual outcomes like uh, Jay, you mentioned, and other factors of visual function? And you can't really assess these without a prospective study. And so, you know, uh, in this study, uh, 81% anatomic success rate with uh, pneumatic retinopexy, that's pretty good. But, you know, vitrectomy is still 93%. And um, I want to parse through the data a little bit more because about a third of the patients with vitrectomy still haven't had cataract surgery yet. So maybe a little bit follow-up data will convince me even more that pneumatic retinopexy may result in better visual outcomes. But it's it's really uh, uh, good stuff, and uh, we should pay attention to the study and the uh, follow-up papers coming out. Mario, how often do you incorporate pneumatics into your practice patterns? As you know, in Europe, the... 
Numerative has got much more limited space than in US. Also because the square buckle procedures are very common also as a radial sponge for similar indications. However, the results of a pivot study are encouraging with the primary success rate of 83%, a better functional recovery, and the lower rate of metamorphopsia compared to the vitrectomy. The potential disadvantage, although the patient has one or more breaks in one clock hour, is however the potential iatrogenic damage coming from absence of a complete PVD and the generation or retinal breaks not associated with the detachment in the lower sectors, which in presence of expansive gas can open up. Slard, I'll, I'll let you kind of close. Um, one of the things that, that Rajiv wrote that was interesting, it was kind of theories for why the vision is better and patients get pneumatic retinopexy versus vitrectomy. Um, I, and I'm at the point right now with my vitrectomies, I don't necessarily require strict positioning from my patients. Um, I tend to try to take it out of the patient's hands in terms of the breaks. I usually just get enough gas that it's covered. And, and with pneumatics, the positioning is obviously much, much more important. So I think that would kind of shift our practice patterns. One, well, why do you think that visual acuity difference exists? And, and two, do you again think that, I think one of the difficulties I have, I just have a lot of patients who just may not position and, and not to be flippant, but I sometimes just wonder if patients in Canada and a different sort of healthcare system are just much more willing to, to position. Maybe our patients would too if we really, really stressed it. But I'm always concerned about positioning when we talk about pneumatics because I, I feel like I meet a lot of patients who I just know aren't going to position. Yeah, you know, so I was sort of confounded by that as well. I don't know why there's a difference in um, you know, visual acuity. I think that as we start looking at, you know, the anatomy uh, closer, I bet that some of these vitrectomies are not benign. You know, I don't think that'll explain a lot of the visual acuity difference, but, you know, going in there, peeling ILM, pulling the posterior hyoid off, what, what have you, I, you're looking at cells and you're, you know, jumping up and down on them with small instruments, albeit, but, you know, nonetheless jumping up and down on them. And so, um, you know, I think that vitrectomy is not without its side effects. I think that one thing that this study doesn't really address, which I think that pneumatic retinoplexy, which I love, by the way, um, you know, would win on is the cost effectiveness. Right, exactly. You know, I think the difference in, in primary reattachment rate is, is not that uh, different. And cost effectiveness wise, you know, if I've got a patient who meets essentially this criteria, um, they're in my clinic, we run over to the OR, pull some gas up, and if they agree to it, they're going, that's it as opposed to getting cleared for surgery, making sure that they're not on their anticoagulation, booking an OR time if it's after hours, a MAC on after hours on Friday, that incurs its own cost. And so I think that we're underutilizing pneumatic retinopexy because you know I love doing vitrectomy much more than I do pneumatic retinopexy. But uh, you know, it, it's an interesting study that I think deserves the highlights that it's gotten um, as we move forward with not only anatomic, but visual acuity uh, outcomes. Uh, just want to uh, mention that it feels great doing a pneumatic retinopexy and watching it succeed also. You feel like such a baller. It just feels good. So I think it's important for us to be happy also. <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> yes, yes. In the age of burnout, absolutely. 
Salard Kish, Mario Romano, Yoshi Nakawa, again, congratulations on putting this issue together. Um, very exciting in those ASRS updates when they were announcing this. Very excited when I saw this issue would be coming out. Uh, and again, um, Yoshi, just wanted to tell people briefly if when this will be out and um, how ASRS members can access this. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before we end, I'm going to go rogue for two seconds and just want to mention to the listeners tuning in that uh, Jay also has a paper in this issue that reveals kind of like the access metrics and data regarding the educational value of this podcast. And I initially asked Jay to like talk about it, but he's kind of too humble for that. Didn't want to place him in the spotlight. That's why I love him. But uh, it's also a really great read and thought that everybody would be keen on checking it out. So please do. And um the issue is going to be the next the next issue of JVRD. It's the uh, September October issue, and our hope is that this special issue also encourages even more young specialists, uh, Rena specialists, to uh, pursue scientific inquiry as part of their careers, because uh, it's fun and meaningful. So please check it out. Thank you guys all for your time, and I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you. Thanks. Jay. Thank, Thank you, Jay. You. Thank you, Mario. Thank you, Yoshi. Have a wonderful day. Bye bye. <laughs>